to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. It's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. While you're turning there, I just kind of wanted to throw a little uh, personal um, remarks of thanksgiving and gratitude for the last uh, two and a half plus years of working for and with Brother Ronnie. Um, You guys have seen him as a, a pastor, but I've seen him as a boss, and I can tell you that he's the same man either way. And so he is, he's just meant a lot to me, and I, I just I want to thank you, Brother Ronnie, uh, for being so good to me and my family over the last uh, almost three years. We're going to be looking at, at Galatians 1, 1 through 8, and the Bible reads there, Paul an apostle not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from the one or Him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on Him. This morning, by taking some time to look at these verses, I hope to accomplish three things. First, I want us to understand what has caused Paul's rebuke in this letter. I want us to understand the history behind why Paul seems so upset at the churches in Galatia. Secondly, I hope to help us all see the Gospel. I want each of us to understand exactly what the gospel is. And I want to make some very clear statements about the nature of salvation. Lastly, I will extend a call to all who can hear me this morning to accept and embrace the gospel as the defining message over your life. I hope and pray that God's Spirit imposes on each of us this morning a desire to respond to the gospel through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to begin, let's walk through these verses in an attempt to shape our understanding of why why Paul is writing this letter. First, we should notice the very typical, then the very unusual way Paul begins the letter. Verses 1-3, through look at those. It's a familiar greeting we see Paul using very regularly uh, in all of his his epistles to the the churches in the New Testament. Look at it. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the church of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could spend some time looking at Paul's other epistles and and you would see that Paul typically shapes his greetings around a similar format to what we're seeing here. And what he does next, however, is what is so unusual. If we look at his letters to the Corinthians and the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and the Thessalonians, we'll see a common thread 
that, that he, he offers some sort of thanksgiving or praise after his initial greeting. He, he says something like, I thank God for the work that you're doing in the kingdom of God. And the, you know, whatever it is happening in that city, he usually offers thanksgiving and praise. Even if he quickly turns towards some sort of correction or rebuke, in all these other letters, we read that Paul starts out with identifying himself, then establishing his authority as an apostle, and then thirdly, offering thanksgiving and some praise for the ones to whom he's writing his letter. This isn't so with the letter to the Galatians. Paul skips over the usual pleasantries and gets right down to business in one of my commentaries, I read this week that, that this letter is called the angriest letter in the New Testament. And we'll see why in just a moment. In verses 4 and 5, Paul gives a backdrop to the sort of issue he, he's going to address with his readers. Let's read 4 and 5 again. Who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is reminding his readers of how and by whom they have been saved. Notice the complete absence of reference to anyone else's good works but Christ's and Christ alone. Christ is the one who gave Himself for our sins. Christ is the one who rescues us from this present evil age. Christ is the one who acted in perfect accordance with the will of God. Therefore, Christ is the only one who shall receive glory forever and ever. Amen. Try to imagine this. Try to imagine that, that you're a member of the church of Galatia nearly 2,000 years ago. And the superstar pastor, the famous missionary Paul, the beloved Paul has sent your church a letter. And so, as you can imagine, the church would be packed and as Paul's letter is going to be read out loud in front of the, the congregation, the letter starts with, Hey, this is Paul. I'm an apostle. I have authority because God says so. And I send greetings of grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. So far, so good, right? Not too bad. And then he goes on and he says, And remember, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we could be forgiven and, and rescued according to the loving will of our God and Father. And we should praise Him for that forever and ever. Amen. At this point, you might be thinking, well, of course. Thanks for the reminder, Paul. Then you might be expecting something along the lines of, and I thank God every day for your faithfulness and service in the ministry of the gospel. Now try to imagine this. Try to imagine the shock as the rest is read out loud. As the entire church is listening, Paul says, I am amazed that you are turning away so quickly from Him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Can you imagine the gasp as that's read? And, and the terror and the stress of the poor elder who had to stand before that congregation and relay the message that Paul was in disbelief at how quickly the church had abandoned the Son of God? There's something important we need to notice right here. At this point we should notice that Paul doesn't say, I am so quickly, I'm amazed at how quickly you turned away from the doctrine of salvation. He doesn't say, I'm shocked at how quickly you turned away from the doctrine of grace. Don't miss this. Look at what 
what he says. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from Him who called you by the grace of Christ. What were they turning from? They were turning from God. They were abandoning the one who had saved them by the grace of Christ and were turning to another gospel. This is what we must understand first. Understand this. If you have pen and paper, write this down. If we lose the doctrine of salvation by grace, we lose the gospel of Jesus. If we lose the gospel of Jesus, we've lost everything. Our doctrines are important. Knowing what the Bible teaches and knowing how to identify false teaching is so incredibly important and essential to our faith. What we believe about God shapes what we believe about ourselves. And it also shapes what we believe about others. So Paul is saying you've completely departed from, from the one who saved you because you've distorted the gospel of grace. This is why we must stop and examine this scripture this morning. We must visit the doctrine of grace over and over again and be reminded again and again of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we're looking at the historical context of what's going on, let's ask the question of what has happened in Galatia to cause this departure from the gospel? To answer that, we look no further than to a group of legalistic religious lobbyists called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jews who believed that in order for a non-Jew to become a Christian, they must first convert to Judaism and adhere to all the Mosaic law. Paul's amazement comes from how open the Christians in Galatia were to this sort of false teaching. Notice that it isn't a minor disagreement on theological preference. This is outright heresy, as Paul calls it. For one to believe and teach that in order to become a Christian, people must first adhere to a set of rules and rituals concerning uh, what food to eat, what drinks to drink, what, what clothes to wear, what places to go, what political stance to hold, and what people to associate with, is what Paul calls a complete turning away from the one who called you by the grace of Christ. The Judaizers had taken Christianity and turned it into an elite club with emissions requirements so extensive that, get this, ironically, if they were honest, not a single one of them could adhere to all of the rules. That's the problem with attaching any sort of works requirement to the gospel of grace. There is no one righteous, not even one apart from Jesus Christ. So there's the historical context of our passage. Now let's turn our focus to what Paul is primarily concerned with, the gospel. I realize that we church people, especially preachers, throw around a lot of Christian-specific words, and we just assume that because you're in church, that you understand and know exactly what we're talking about. So this morning, just in case you aren't sure, let me explain as clearly as I can what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news, right? We've, we've heard that. I've heard that my whole life. Good news. Okay, let me, let me try to help you understand why we call it good news. Imagine you pick up the newspaper tomorrow morning and you read housing market values at an all-time high. 
If you didn't know that currently our real estate values were in the dumps and had been for several years, you may not be able to fully appreciate the good news that home values were at an all-time high. Does that make sense? So you need some of the backstory to, to fully appreciate and understand how good the news is. Let me give you another example. Let's just say that tomorrow, after a long Labor Day of golfing or fishing or sleeping in or as I'll be doing, mowing the yard, doing homework, uh, you, you settle down in the living room in front of the TV to wind down with the nightly news. And the news anchor comes on television and declares that scientists and researchers have confirmed that they have found a cure for cancer. If you don't have cancer... And if you don't know someone who is suffering from cancer, your reaction may be to think, wow, that's, that's really good news. Way to go, science. But if you have cancer, or if someone you love is suffering from cancer, your reaction is going to be very, very different. It's going to change you. You see, until we know the full story of the Gospel, it may be hard for us to see it as good news. Likewise, until we see how the gospel directly affects us, we may not be able to see its full goodness. So please allow me this morning to, to share with you this, this full story of the gospel and how it has directly affected you and me and everyone else. Are you ready? Here's the gospel. In the beginning, all the way back in the beginning, God created all things, and all that He created was good. His work of creation required no one and no help but, but Himself. Creation is entirely dependent on God, including the crown of His creation, man and woman. Man and woman experienced harmony with all that God had created, as well as the endless pleasure of knowing God and enjoying Him intimately. God set up countless choices for man and woman to make that would bless them and honor God as their provider. God only placed one boundary on man and woman, which if violated, would result in their expulsion from the garden and the brokenness of their relationship with God and each other. Tragically, we know that man and woman chose to disobey God and as promised, suffer the consequences of that choice. Ever since then, God has established boundaries with, with His creation. And over and over and over again, men and women have rebelled against the authority of their Creator. As the story goes on, we see that God invited a select group of people to represent Him in all of the world. And He made an agreement with them that if they would serve Him as their only God and obey His commands, then He would prosper them and fill their lives with endless blessings. God's chosen people would spend the next several thousand years going through an epic cycle of accepting God, then rejecting God, and accepting God, and rejecting God. Centuries passed, and all the while, God labored with His people to bring them into an understanding of His goodness and His grace toward them. He delivered them from, from slavery only to have His people turn their backs on Him and serve other gods. God provided for His people when they were completely helpless, only to have them curse His plan and question His goodness. 
All the while, God had a plan. One day, He would send His Son, Jesus. The very image of His glory and the very representation of His great love for mankind, Jesus would come to the earth and Jesus would be the final Savior for His people. So God sent prophets to His people so that they would be ready when the Messiah came. The prophets brought warning and correction and and the people didn't want to listen. They had already determined in their hearts that they knew better than God, so they rejected all of God's prophets and placed their trust in their own abilities and in their own understandings. Until one day, God stopped talking. For close to 400 years, God didn't send any prophets. He didn't give anyone any visions. He didn't reveal any scripture. He just stopped. Until the time was right, He simply waited until the time was right for Him to send His Son. As God's people experienced oppression under a foreign nation once again, God God entered into the world as a baby just as promised and prophesied. The baby grew into a man who eventually grew into, or a boy who eventually grew into a man, and that man we know is Jesus, God's Son. Jesus taught with unbelievable authority. He was wiser than any of the rabbis. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons. He made the lame to walk. He walked on water. He forgave sin. And He accepted all who would follow Him. All the while, He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. He preached that He was the one who had been prophesied about. He called men and women to turn away from their sinfulness and place their faith in His ability to save them and to forgive them. But many of God's people, many of God's chosen people, the Jews, rejected Jesus. They rebelled against His teaching, made false claims about His motives, and refused to believe that He was their appointed Messiah. They set in their hearts to kill Him. What they didn't know was that this was the plan all along. Jesus came to earth for one reason. Redemption. Before the world was created, God had purposed in His will that mankind would know Him and enjoy Him forever. But He also knew that mankind would fall to sin and that He would have to one day rescue and redeem His creation back to Himself. His most beloved creation, mankind, had committed cosmic mutiny, thus evoking the wrath of a just and vengeful God. But God is as loving and gracious as He is just and vengeful. So in God's great plan, He made a provision that for His wrath to be satisfied and for His creation to be spared the punishment they deserved. This is why Jesus came. Jesus is that rescuer. Jesus provides that redemption. As Jesus went to the cross, He was not murdered. His life was not taken from Him prematurely. He was not helpless. He willingly laid down His life as a substitute for me and you. That is the climax of the story. God satisfied His own wrath by sending His Son to take on our punishment. You see, if you turn to Romans 3.23, it helps us to understand 
all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. What this means is that we are all sinners. We have all rebelled against God. It isn't a question of how much good you've done versus how much bad you've done. The issue is have you sinned? And the answer to that question is yes. Romans 3, 10-12 tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good. There is not even one. So it would be foolish for us not to all agree this morning that we have offended God with our selfishness, our jealousy, lies, lust, gossip, cursing, and judging. God is a good judge and good judges provide appropriate punishments for crimes committed. This is where many of us would say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not perfect, but I'm really not all that bad either. Let me ask you, compared to what? Compared to who? Sure. Depending on who you're sitting next to. When you compare yourselves against that person, or the person down the street, or the people you work with, then sure, I will agree with you. None of us in here are probably that bad. But you see, God judges our sinfulness in respect to His holiness, not anyone else's. Essentially, the standard for being justified isn't being better than our neighbor. The standard is God Himself. We are created in His image. What we do with that image is what brings God so much offense. When we abuse our bodies, we abuse the image of God. When we slander and tear down someone else, we slander and tear down the image of God. When we take advantage of other people to get what we want, we are taking advantage of the image of God. When we curse people, we're cursing the image of God that every single human being bears. He takes our sin so personally because every single sin is a personal violation of His image. So we are all guilty. Then we see in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sinning against God is death. Some of you are in here today and you are already living under that penalty and you don't even realize it. If you are living apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ, you are already living under the penalty of your sins. Ephesians 2.1 tells us this plainly. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. So many of you who are walking around without a saving relationship with Jesus are dead. There is nothing you can do for yourselves to change that. Spiritually, you are dead. Dead people don't do anything. They just stay dead. Let me give you an example. Let me try to give you some imagery here. Let's say you're all alone at home or, or out hunting or, or whatever, and you have a massive heart attack or a massive stroke, and there's no one there to help you, and you aren't able to call for help. What's going to happen? You're going to die. As you lay there unconscious, all you can do is die. You're completely helpless. And once you're dead, guess what? There's nothing you can do for yourself to change your circumstances. You need someone else, don't you? 
You need help. This is the imagery Paul is using when he says that apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Romans 6.23 goes on, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, God is our good and loving Father. It is not His desire to exact justice on those who have sinned against them or against Him. That is why He sent Jesus. From the beginning of time, God has planned that He would provide a perfect salvation from His wrath. And make no mistake about it, hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the wrath of God poured out for all of eternity. But we have been given a gift. Jesus died in our place. We were the ones who deserved the punishment He received and He did it willingly. Romans 5.8 paints this picture so beautifully in that, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 9 continues this good news. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So it is in Jesus Christ's death that we have been saved from the wrath of God. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus' work on the cross, His righteousness in life, and His justified position before the Father are applied to us and mankind can once again have peace with God. But the Gospel doesn't end there. There is more good news. You see, what Jesus did was so perfect and so incredibly valuable that none of us could ever afford to buy it. We could never be good enough to deserve it. We could never work hard enough to earn it. Salvation is priceless, therefore it cannot be bought. The only way for any of us to receive it is for it to be absolutely free. It has to be free or you can't get it. This is the doctrine of grace that Paul in Galatians was so intent on defending. The Judaizers had come in and said, sure, you can be saved, but first, you have to do this and this and this before you are worthy of Christ. Let me suggest to you, to you that in modern terms, Judaizing looks like this. Before you can be saved, you have to stop drinking alcohol. You have to stop cussing. You have to stop gambling. Stop looking at pornography. Stop living with your girlfriend. Stop using drugs. Stop being jealous of your neighbors. Stop voting Democrats. Stop listening to rap music. Stop cheating on your husband. Stop speeding on the interstate. Stop chewing tobacco. Stop having doubts about salvation. And oh, you have to start going to church, giving 10%, start listening to Christian music, get a WWJD bracelet, support Chick-fil-A, vote Republican, and read your Bible every day. Can everybody... We can do that, right? Let's do that. The fact of the matter is, is that once you become a Christian, sure, when the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's presence takes over in your life, absolutely your, your, your actions, your behavior is going to change. Because, and this is why it's going to change. Because Christ will not let you enjoy living a sinful life any longer. 
And the Holy Spirit will compel you to, to live the actions of loving God and loving your neighbor. But you see, many times it is incorrectly implied that the behavior must change before the heart has changed. Paul says that that way of thinking is a complete departure from Jesus Himself. When we abandon the doctrine of salvation by grace and not works, we have abandoned the gospel. Now here's the rest of the story. So Jesus, by the grace of God, provided the free gift of salvation to all who would accept it. And here's how that happens. Romans 10.9 instructs us that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. You see... It really is a come-as-you-are proposition. Nowhere in Scripture do we see any requirements on salvation other than exclusive faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. We look at ourselves and we say, well, I really ought to stop this or stop that before I get right with the Lord. It's like, i got to get right before I get right. Let me tell you that you have departed from the gospel if you believe that your actions bring you more righteousness before God than the righteous actions of Jesus on the cross. As Jesus breathes His last breath on Calvary, He proclaimed that it is finished. That means that all of our working and striving and attempting to satisfy God is finished with His death. All over the New Testament, we see it taught that salvation is received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We also see that faith is accompanied by daily repentance away from our sins and toward Jesus. The change happens after the conversion. Only those who are willing to bring God their absolute worst can receive His absolute forgiveness. Isn't it time to bring all that filth, all that shame, all that anger and that pain and that fear and, and drag it kicking and screaming down the aisle to redemption and have Jesus apply His finished work on salvation in your life once and for all. I wonder this morning if there's anyone who feels the call of salvation. Anyone who feels the Holy Spirit leading you to accept this free gift that God has given you. If you're sitting there today feeling like you need to respond in some way to what you've heard this morning, if so, then I invite you to come. I invite you at this time to put your trust in Jesus. Repent of your sins and receive the, the free gift of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning?